I want people to know in closing that we are still in a state of emergency, that having a new president and vice president is good. It is one that we fought for. We also fought to ensure that our government has a balance that actually has a body of individuals who lean towards justice. So those things are good. But what we know is that the systems that we function under every single day are operating in the fashion in which they were designed. They are operating to oppress, to control, to diminish, and to actually steal resources from people of color, from black people, 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 from black Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast, bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. Listen, as we move into episode three from Powerful Words. I just want to start with with something simple, and then I'm going to lead into what to expect today. So our fight for civil rights and social justice across this country's history is rich. I mean, really rich. It's fraught with amazingly powerful words from courageous men and women, men and women who risk more than even imaginable to most of us. And that's what makes the work we're doing here at Wild Black Across Black History Month so important. Our Powerful Words Black History Month series is focused on the intersectionality of then and now. The fact that the fight may have changed some, but the spirit of the fight is nearly identical. It's something that we can use to our advantage. How? It's probably what you're thinking. And the answer is simple. Our past leaders laid out a blueprint full of success and failure for us to learn from and adapt as we apply pressure on the structures today. Now, I've promised you all month that our surprise guests would start flowing, and today that kicks in. The powerful and the poised activist and strategist, Tamika Mallory, is here with us today. As a listener of Wild Black, you damn well better already know who Tamika is. But just in case you've been slipping, Here's a clip from her George Floyd-inspired speech, State of Emergency, that has been dubbed the speech of a generation. Enough is enough. And we are not responsible for the mental illness that has been inflicted upon our people by the American government, institutions, and those people who are in positions of power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target. Because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent. Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. 
And so young people are responding to that. They are enraged. And there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops. Tell me you're familiar with that. If not, I don't even know if you deserve to listen any further. Stop and go get your house in order. Tamika's here today to deliver a speech by Fannie Lou Hamer that literally changed the course of black voting rights in this country. Ms. Hamer's August 22, 1964 speech before the Credentials Committee, Democratic National Convention. Before we get to Tamika's delivery, I want to enrich you just a bit more on both Ms. Fannie Lou Hamer and this particular speech. Ms. Hamer was born in Mississippi in 1917, the granddaughter of slaves and a sharecropper for much of her life. In 1962, the organization SNCC held a voter registration in her hometown of Ruleville, where Ms. Hamer was surprised to learn that according to the U.S. Constitution, black folks had been granted voting rights, a fact that white supremacists in the state and the country worked hard to keep blacks from becoming aware of. At this understanding and the request for support, Ms. Hamer emphatically volunteered and was quoted saying of the opposition, the only thing they could do to me was kill me. And it seemed like they'd been trying to do that a little bit at a time ever since I could remember. Let's fast forward to 1964, only two or so years later. Ms. Hamer joins a group of 64 delegates to the DNC to petition the convention's credential committee for four seats on the convention floor. In this speech that you'll hear Tamika deliver momentarily, Fannie Lou Hamer discusses in detail the scare tactics and violence she and others experienced in Mississippi as they attempted to register to vote. She talks about the physical roadblocks, what happened when her group got off the bus and tried to get a little to eat, the violence they were subjected to by the police and others on the scene and at the police station. She's quoted saying, they beat me till my body went hard, till I couldn't bend my fingers or get up when they told me to. That's how I got this blood clot in my left eye. The sight's nearly gone now. And my kidneys was injured from the blow they gave me in the back. Even after all of this, she testified as to how upon her return and successful registration, she was threatened with the loss of her right to sharecrop if she didn't withdraw that registration. By the way, she didn't. And to me, this next point speaks so significantly to the opposition she faced then and we still face today. During this televised hearing that also featured Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it was Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony that our government was most worried about. It was her words of overcoming and fighting for our rights that worried the establishment so much that the president of the United States at the time, Johnson, decided that the country should not hear or see her testimony. And instead, he scheduled a press conference to coincide with her time in order to draw the media's watchful eye. He actually called a press conference to announce that it had been nine months since Governor Connolly had been shot along with JFK. Although it seemed a successful diversion tactic, indeed it was not. The content of his announcement was so weak that media outlets saw through his attempt to hide her testimony. And that attempt then became the new story, which thrust her speech into primetime. Now, Tamika's mic is hot, and you have the context you need to fully grasp and understand what you're about to hear. 
So please allow me to introduce to Wild Black, Ms. Tamika D. Mallory, reading and then discussing the impact past and present of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony to the Credentials Committee of the DNC in August 1964. Tamika, the floor is yours, ma'am. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Ruleville, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Ruleville, we was held up by the city police and the highway patrol and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Ruleville and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles to the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children, who told me that the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. Before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pop tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I meant that. If you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. Then if you go down and withdraw, you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him, I did not register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Ruleville, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. And June 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom and two of the people to use the restaurant. Two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out. During this time, I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. I got back on the bus and one of the persons had used the washroom got back on the bus too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off the bus to see what was happening and somebody screamed from the car that the five workers was in and said, get that one there. When I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail 
and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Ivesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say, yes, sir, nigger? Can you say, yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say, yes, sir. So, well, say it. She said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her. I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman, and he asked me where I was from. I told him Ruleville, and he said, we are going to check this. They left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Ruleville, all right, and he used the curse word. And he said, we are going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. I laid on my face and the first Negro began to beat. I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet and the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro who had beat me to sit on my feet to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress. I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Megan Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register, to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. Fannie Lou Hamer, the woman who wants to cry, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. When I think of these words, I think of how far we have come, and I'm grateful to Ms. Hamer. Mega Evers, and so many others who sacrificed so much for our rights and for our freedom. But I am so heavily burdened by how far we yet must travel. Insurrection in our nation has meaning and implications on so many different levels. But the one that impacts my spirit the most is that the seditionists needed to hang a noose in front of the Capitol. I sit with that often. I think about it. And I challenge myself with this feeling of why. Why a noose? And whether or not Black people in this country are in a place that we will 
never, ever, ever get out of. Because I believe that those people who went to the Capitol, who aren't fighting because they don't have adequate health care or because they don't have the ability to access loans or good housing. Most of the people who were out there on January 6th, those are individuals who at least have the ability to access the American dream if they work for it, if they access the relationships and resources at their fingertips. But yet there is something about Black people rising up and calling for change, equity, and justice in this nation that angers them. And it angers them in a real deep way to the point that they are actually willing to take the lives of their own people in order to obtain and sustain a level of oppression and control over Black bodies. That noose We all know what that noose means. And although some may try to uh, discount it or act as if there's no correlation between slavery and enslavement and when Black people were strapped to nooses, hung from trees, and other forms of taking our lives in the most disgusting ways, we know that there is a direct connection. When I think of those individuals who were out there on January 6, 2021. I can't help but think about that January 5th, 2021, Black people ensured that those individuals no longer had control over our federal government and that January 6th must have been a response to that. But the response is not merely saying we're upset. It's not merely uh, showing some level of, of anger and discontentment. The response was to hang a noose which represents the worst time in American history and how it has treated Black people who were trafficked here as cattle on ships to this nation, to be used to build this nation, but yet never ever treated with the respect that we deserve. So when Fannie Lou Hamer is telling this story of what happened to her, while I realize that most of us don't have to fight the same battles in order to be able to register to vote, I know that going to a store, buying Skittles, wearing a hoodie, sleeping in your own home, having a broken taillight, walking from a corner store, playing with a a toy gun, these things could in fact end up with you being abused in the same way that Fannie Lou Hamer was abused in the 1960s. So while we definitely have come a very, very far way, we have so much more work to do in order to change the trajectory of Black people's existence in America. I want people to know in closing that we are still in a state of emergency, that having a new president and vice president is good. It is one that we fought for. We also fought to ensure that our government has a balance, that 
has a body of individuals who lean towards justice. So those things are good. But what we know is that the systems that we function under every single day are operating in the fashion in which they were designed. They are operating to oppress, to control, to diminish, and to actually steal resources from people of color, from Black people especially. And so you could put anyone in office and still not be able to deal with the level of pain and abuse, murder that Black people are experiencing because these systems have to be torn down and redesigned. Reform is a good word. I say it all the time, but I think we are beyond reform and we are at the point of dismantling, overhauling, and creating a new America one that lives up to the values in which Fannie Lou Hamer speaks of, which is that we are supposed to be in a country that is for all of us, that this is the America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, but it has not been free for Black people, and we are tired. This has been Tamika D. Mallory, and I'm so happy to be a part of this particular project on Wild Black. What I love the most about Life Wild Black is that everyone wants to be us. There is literally no culture in the world that has been imitated, replicated, and copied as much as being Black. And so I love the idea that we set trends and that without us, there's no world because everyone from coast to coast recognizes that Black people are literally lit. And so that's what I most love about living while Black. Check me out every week on my podcast, Street Politicians, with my co-founder and homeboy, my son, The General, are discussing issues from the streets to politics and everything in between. Also, my book, State of Emergency, is available on all book buying platforms. It will be released on May 11th, but you can pre-order it today. State of Emergency and Street Politicians. Check me out. Follow me on social media at Tamika D. Mallory. Peace. Mr. Chairman and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. And I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastman and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we was held up by the city police and the state highway patrolman and carried back to Indianola 
where the bus driver was charged that day was driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt, and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know that Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, that if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets was fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. In June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Continental Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, four of the people got off to use the washroom. And two of the people, to use the restaurant, two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out during this time I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. I got back on the bus and one of the persons who had used the washroom got back on the bus too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening, and somebody screamed from the car that the fire workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigger? 
Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So well, say it. She said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we're going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you are from Roosevelt, all right. And he used the curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the state highway patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face. The first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet, to keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hurt. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress. I pulled my dress down and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Thank you. What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Shonda, and I am here from the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast. If you're a fan of psychology and mental health, be sure to check out and subscribe to the Paging Dr. Shonda podcast, a show that covers and talks about buzzing topics in pop culture, mental health in the black community, and faith-based topics. And it's brought to you exclusively by the Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators.